The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1988. And we're off to West Germany. Yeah, that's right, West Germany. Reunification is still two years away. Germany is still split. A large, increasingly graffitied wall still divides Berlin. So, what's on the west side of this great nation? We've got Munich, Gelsenkirchen, Hamburg, Frankfurt, Cologne, Stuttgart, Hanover and Dusseldorf. And we've also got eight of the best national teams in Europe. Two groups of four, top two go through, and then it's knockout football all the way. So who are the favourites? Well, it's not the holders, France. They didn't even qualify. Top seed in their group, they were beaten into third place by East Germany. And the group winners, the mighty Soviet Union, a formidable force under legendary manager Valery Lobanovsky. What about the hosts? Well, they're a good shout. West Germany were the runners-up in the 1982 World Cup and the 1986 World Cup. And they've got one hell of a squad. Lothar Matthäus, Jürgen Klinsmann and Rudi Völler. The Italians? Roberto Mancini, Gianluca Viali, and Paolo Maldini. And what about the Soviet Union? Renat Dasayev, Vasily Ratz, Igor Bilanov. And don't laugh, but you can't discount England. Bobby Robson's side only just found their form in the 1986 World Cup when they found Diego Maradona in the quarterfinals. But they only dropped two points in qualifying. The highlight? An extraordinary 4-1 win away in Yugoslavia. And then there's the Dutch. Rinus Mikkels, the manager who so nearly won the World Cup in 1974, is out of retirement to lead them one more time. And there's a growing feeling that this generation of players might be a little bit tasty. Marco van Basten, Frank Rijkaard, and Ruud Gullit. And we haven't even mentioned Spain, Denmark or Ireland. More on them in a moment. The tournament opens on June the 10th at the now demolished Rheinstadion in Dusseldorf. Over 60,000 fans are in attendance to see Franz Beckenbauer's West Germans take on Azeglio Vicini's Italy. Roberto Mancini opens the scoring early in the second half, but the Italians don't hold the lead for long. Walter Zenga, the Italian goalkeeper, had been penalised for taking too many touches. Raphael Honigstein is the Athletics German football writer. With the ball in his own box by English referee Keith Hackett, so it's an indirect free kick, which is played short, and Andreas Bremer, as he inevitably does in these big tournaments, somehow finds a gap. And I'd like to say smashes it in, but it doesn't really. It sort of just bobbles into the Italian goal past Walter Zenga for the equaliser. It ends 1-1. The next day, Spain and Denmark go to town on each other in a thrilling tussle that ends 3-2 to the Spanish. And then, on June the 12th in Stuttgart, something extraordinary happens. England, as you'll recall, were one of the pre-tournament favourites. And why wouldn't they be? They've got Gary Lineker, John Barnes, Brian Robson, Peter Beardsley, loads of great players. And while no group is easy when there are only eight teams, they'll open the tournament up against what really should be the weakest side. 
Ireland had never qualified for a major international tournament. They weren't expected to qualify for this one. But they did. Somehow, Jack Cholton, a World Cup winner with England in 1966, had powered them through a group containing top seeds Belgium, World Cup semi-finalists just two years earlier, Scotland and a very strong Bulgarian side. And it was the Bulgarians who looked odds on to qualify. All they had to do was beat an already eliminated Scotland at home in Sofia and they'd be on the plane to West Germany. Well, even Cholton didn't expect anything. And suddenly I got a phone call. And the guy said to me, uh, oh, congratulations. I said, what for? He said, for qualifying for Europe. I said, no, I said, uh, the match is on the, on the telly. I'm watching it, it's nil-nil. And it's only about half an hour gone. He said, no, no, it's recorded. Scotland won one nil. And this kid scored. We never expected it. I think one of the things about Jack Charden, I, I, saw, I, I was reminded of this quote when he died. Dion Fanning is an Irish journalist and part of the Totally Football Show. People said, uh, oh, you know, Jack has gone fishing and he's, he's, and he's not that obsessed with football. And the, there was the great Johan Cruyff quote about, about Jack Charden. And he said, people say Jack isn't interested in football because he's always fishing. But what do you think he's thinking about when he's fishing? He's thinking about football. Thanks to the rule that allowed players to represent the nation of their grandparents' birth, Ireland brought a number of players who you might not initially consider to be Irish. There is a very good argument to be made for the, the granny rule, uh, as people called it, in terms of Ireland. It's not necessarily why these players were playing for, for Ireland, but it's a very, very good argument. And it does come back to emigration and it comes back to how... Ireland, Irish people were forced to leave Ireland and ended up, you know, around the world, in Australia, in America, but, you know, hugely significantly, and not hugely significantly just in terms of football, but in terms of everything in Britain, but from, you know, mo building motorways to the hospitals, to the nurses in the NHS, everywhere was full of Irish people who found a new life in England. But... There's more to this story than meets the eye, or indeed the ear. Irish people left, you know, and they left and their sons and their grandsons then came back and played for Ireland. So <laughs> the, 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 the rule may have been bent. John Aldridge famously said... Uh, when he when he was picked for for Ireland, that he said, "I was always very fond of my great gran." Those ties may not have always been incredibly strong, but for Irish people, it made sense, I, and that was the important thing. It made sense that Ray Houghton from from Glasgow was there. It made sense that John Aldridge from Liverpool was there. Like Liverpool, an Irish city. It takes Ireland just six minutes to open the scoring, and England never recover. Stevens together, Galvin pulling it across. A missed kick by Sansom, in goes Aldridge, and Houghton! 1-0! And Ray Houghton has stopped the breakthrough! I remember when the ball came to me, um, Peter Shield had come off his line a little bit, so I knew there was a lot of space, and my, my one thought was get a bit of height on it, and lift it over him. 
And then, you know, as long as you didn't get too much elevation, there was a good chance it was going to go in. The terror, like the second half, that, that, I remember very clearly thinking, there must be something better in the world I can be doing right now than watching this. Like there must be, I remember thinking I have a record that is, I know the songs I have that are 10 minutes long, maybe I'll just go upstairs and put one of them on because this is hell. Like this is, these these 10 minutes are, are absolute hell. Later that day, there's a surprise for those who predicted great things for the Dutch. They're beaten 1-0 by the Soviet Union. You were very defensive. Sasha Gurionov is a Russian football writer and part of the Totally Football Show. In this particular match, you could say, you know, Holland dominated. Holland also didn't have Marco van Bastenov, who only came on, after, I think, after 57 minutes. Uh, and uh, they scored a counter. Uh, that man, Vasily Ratz, uh, with a quality finish across the goalkeeper. And that was basically a kind of a textbook Lobanovsky away performance. Um, without being spectacular, Soviet Union were very, very efficient. And with no third-place escape route in these days, that meant early jeopardy. England, play the Netherlands next and whoever loses is out. Back in Group A, Denmark, the team of the 80s, exit the final tournament of the decade with a whimper. They're beaten 2-0 by West Germany and left with no hope of qualification to the semi-finals. Was it really the case that Denmark couldn't win silverware with Michael Laudrup in the team? Yes, yes it was. But uh, you'll have to wait for 1992 to see what I mean. For now, it's enough to know that Germany have hit their stride. Italy also put themselves in a strong position later that night, beating Spain thanks to a goal from Gianluca Vialli. And now all eyes turn to Dusseldorf, where England faced the Dutch, knowing it's all or nothing. The thing about Holland was was PSV Eindhoven had just won the um, European Cup with, with Ruud Hullet, with Ronald Koeman, with all his great players. Oliver Kay, the Athletic senior football writer. They seemed exotic. Hullet particularly seemed exotic with his, you know, with, with his dreadlocks. He was a tall man. He was pretty tall. He looked strong. Elko Born is a Dutch football writer. You looked at Lathic. He had a pretty cool haircut that a lot of people really loved. loved. Uh, long black uh, hair. He just looked cool at a time, you know, when a lot of footballers, Dutch footballers, maybe, I mean, maybe you could say a lot of them looked pretty boring. Think about something like Ronald Koeman or Marco van Boston. Nice chaps, but, you know, pretty much front of the mill. And then there was Hoot Gullit with his, yeah, his tall appearance, his, his, his charisma, his haircut. People just, uh, people were just drawn to him naturally, I think. England are outclassed. Rude Hullet's deft pass finds Marco van Basten in the penalty area, who twists, turns and lashes past Peter Shilton. England respond in the second half, Brian Robson racing through to chip van Broekelen. But parity is short-lived. This is van Basten's time. Keeped! What might surprise you, listener, is that Van Basten was not the first choice striker for the Dutch due to his many ankle injuries, but he certainly made his mark. He was almost, you know, like a wizard who could just, out of nothing, come up with these beautiful, beautiful things every now and then that maybe when you see him play, you wouldn't expect if you'd never seen him before, but he was always able to surprise you, I guess. Four days after England's tournament has begun, it's over. But for the Irish... 
the party is only just getting started. It was an ex extraordinarily good performance from Ireland. The country wasn't entirely absorbed and obsessed as it would be two years later. Our next door neighbours were out in their driveway washing their car. So I opened the door, screaming, Dad, Dad, Dad! Screaming, like, in, in, you know, what you could, you was ecstasy, but you could easily confuse it with agony. And uh, my brother, meanwhile, was in, back in the, in the, in the front room watching the game, screaming, going, Ah! Ah! And they looked at me and they honestly, they were ready to, they thought they're like, I'm, you know, the, a very, a very, very brutal crime had just taken place in the front room as I was screaming, dad, dad, and you just hear these screams from inside. But, uh, but it was, I, as far as I was concerned, it was their own fault for cleaning their car while the greatest moment in, in Irish sport took place. This one all draw meant that the Irish had a chance of making the final four. I mean, they had to get a point from the Dutch first, but they'd already beaten England and held off the might of the Soviet Union, so why not? But for now, back to Group A. Group A is wrapped up on June 17th. Italy put the lid on a miserable Danish campaign by beating them 2-0 in Cologne, while West Germany and Spain tussle for the last remaining spot. Rudi Voller, the most 80s-looking German on either side of 80s Germany, takes control. He was an amazing striker. He was really, really hard-working um, player, but also very, very quick. Something that um, doesn't necessarily come across that well. But he was, he was incredible. He would play on the shoulder and he would just go through. And he missed, I think, almost a year once when Klaus Augenthaler, the Bayern sweeper, fouled him really, really badly. But um, for Germany, he would, he would almost inevitably perform and was one of Germany's re most reliable players of that era. West Germany and Italy then book their places in the final four. But who would they meet? Find out after this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. It's 1988, and it's the last set of European Championship group games. Denmark, with their Laudrups and their Lurbys, are out. England with their Linekers and their Robsons, are out. Spain, spearheaded by Emilio the Vulture Buterengo, are out. But 50 to one long shot, the Republic of Ireland are scrapping for a place in the semi-finals. Get in. And the Irish give it everything they've got, rocking the Dutch on their heels when Paul McGrath hits the woodwork. But that's as close as they get. A freakish late goal from Dutch midfielder Wim Kieft finally ends their resistance. Koeman, Kieft, it's a goal! It did seem that they were just going to cling on until the, uh, the Wim Kieft goal at the very end and, you know, the fact that the way it went in as well. The m amount of times you watch it afterwards and you're looking at going, how is this going to, how is this going to take the turn? It's like the sort of magic bullet 
with JFK. Like suddenly it just takes this ominous spin and next thing it's and Packy Bonner can't reach it and it's just it's just squirming into the net. It was uh it was horrendous really. And what of England? It was grim and but it was just it was just a, a really bad tournament for England and and the fact that you look back and think they were they were good players. That was a good that was a good group of players who could have done something. And I think things just went against them. They, they, they were unlucky in that Ireland game, and and they you know, conceded an early goal against Ireland and never really recovered. But completely annihilated in in the final game against uh, the Soviet Union. England are beaten three one and would leave West Germany without a single point. It will later transpire that Lineker was suffering from hepatitis, which might explain his lacklustre performances. But nobody knew that at the time, and the media were furious. Surely Bobby Robson would go. But no, Robson would stay. He would have one more tournament, Italia 90. And you might want to dig out a copy of One Night in Turin to see how that went. Off to the semi-finals then, and there was a little bit of history to contend with in our first clash, which sees the Netherlands take on West Germany. It was a very intense rivalry. There was a lot of a lot of historical context here. Many of the players, their parents, had been through the war. And even I remember growing up, even in the, as late as the 90s in the Netherlands as well, the war and Germany as a country was still just a very touchy, touchy subject. Every time, everything that had anything to do with Germany was always looked at through the lens of World War II and the German occupation of the Netherlands. It was personal. It was literally personal for a lot of players. Their family had been through World War II and it just felt like some players might not be willing to admit it. Some of them were willing to admit it, but feelings of revenge, feeling of trauma just played a big role from World War II. Uh, they had played a big role in 1974 as well. That was another element, the football element of having lost that final of the World Cup in 1974. Those two things came together and it was just a huge, huge, huge toxic cocktail almost really uh, for the Dutch. But what they realized, I think that for the Dutch, it was more than a game. It became a sort of revenge for 74, but also for the Second World War and everything, you know, mixed up together in a game that took place in Hamburg uh, and had, by some estimates, almost half the crowd actually being Dutch. I mean, these were the times when you can just go and buy a ticket on the day or maybe a couple of days early. And Hamburg was not known as a hotbed of support for the West Germany team. Just before the hour, Jürgen Klinsmann cuts inside the penalty area. Frank Reichard wipes out the German and Lothar Matthäus converts the spot kick. Twenty minutes later, Van Basten um, falls to the floor. Ronald Koeman puts the penalty away. Yeah, that was probably a dive. And then, as the clock ticks down, sliding in at full stretch. Van Basten, 
if Mkola had done really well man marking Van Basten out the game for most of the game but then of course two minutes before the end Van Basten just snuck in ahead of him and scored and all hell break lo- broke loose in, in the Netherlands and for Germany it was I think seen as a pretty embarrassing exit but not one again to my personal memories that people dwelled that long on because it was in inverted commas only the Euros and not the World Cup. Sometimes there is the feeling in the Netherlands that winning finals is a step too far for Dutch teams. You know, sometimes they're pretty good. Sometimes they're very good. In 1974, they were very good. They got to the final. In 88, they were very good. Maybe in 2010, they were pretty good as well and got to the final. But but winning that last game, winning that final is almost, it seems sometimes, it feels impossible for some reason. One finalist then is confirmed, the Netherlands. But who will be their opponents? It's time for Italy's young squad to face the Soviet Union. You might think it's an easy one to predict. You might think wrong. So Valerian Lobanovsky was an early proponent of, if you like, mathematical football, I think they called it. So he he teamed up with a scientist, um, Zelensov in Kiev, and they started analyzing games. They started analyzing, uh, effectively, computer analysis of, um, you know, what, sh- what should the players be doing? Uh, so trying to put some sort of rules and rationale about the game. The Soviets do do a, a an amazing thing here because on the morning of the game, Lobanovsky asks his squad, "So shall we press them?" And the, apparently, the whole team goes, "Yeah." go for it. So what happened was a Soviet Union played Italy that spring and lost 4-1. But what the, obviously Lobanovsky and his analytics team, what they observed was that, was that the Italians didn't like it up them. And um, what we saw so far in Euro 88 is that the Italian team didn't really come under pressure. So what the Soviets did, they went absolutely nuts. They pressed, they pressed, they pressed the life out of them. Italians, they just break. They just, they have never seen anything like it. Uh, they don't know what to do. And uh, two Soviet goals in succession, Litovchenko and Protasov, um, who the year before moved from Dnepr-Dnepropetrovsk to Dynamo Kiev, they make it 2-0 uh, after about 62-63 minutes and that's game over because the Italians, they just been absolutely flattened. This is a refreshed Italy under Azelio Vicini. James Horncastle is the Athletics Italian football writer. Vicini replaced Ezio Berzot uh, after the 86 World Cup where Italy had gone as defending champions, disappointed because Beazot had put all of his faith in the old guard who'd won in the World Cup in Spain four years earlier. And Vicini, who was the under-21 coach uh, and had a lot of success, basically was bringing through a new generation. So that's why you see a lot of very young, talented players, the first of maybe back-to-back golden generations that Italy were to benefit from in the 80s and 90s. And this team really kind of came to fruition a couple of years after this tournament at the 1990 World Cup, which, of course, Italy were hosting. Looking back in history, this is possibly, you know, the last, you know, high point of Soviet football because this was a, like, this pressing system, this coach's philosophy taken to absolute peak at a crucial match in the European, like, in in the continental tournament. Um, And the Soviet Union make it to the final for the first time since 1972. And at this stage, I think they feel really, really good about themselves. But those two defensive losses, uh, Bissonov uh, injured and Kuznetsov uh, suspended, 
uh, that would prove to be crucial. Yes, the Italians were swept aside by the Red Army. And that meant, 15 days after they had met in their opening group game, the Soviet Union and the Netherlands would meet once again in Munich for the final. Throughout this tournament, it seems that almost every Dutch goal is set up by Ruud Hullet and stuck away by Marco van Basten. But now, right at the end, their roles are reversed. It's Hullet again! The Dutch have taken the lead! They can't relax. They need one more goal to make sure. And what a goal! Van Basten! Arnold Muren, out on the left, tosses up a cross that seems to hang in the air for 20 minutes. It's high and deep. Too deep, surely, for Van Basten, who seems to be at an impossible angle. I think that was that moment of pure magic from Van Basten that almost, you know, maybe you wouldn't expect it. You wouldn't expect it from that cross that he got, but out of nothing, he just managed to conjure up something absolutely beautiful. And it's impossible to forget, really. You always remember it. I remember where I was. I was watching it with friends. Um, nothing really happened in terms of putting the result beyond doubt. That's how I remember it. But everyone got off their chairs or sofas or wherever they were sitting for that goal because it was just something so outrageous. I remember watching it in a cafe and just on silence. It's like, did this just ha like like people are just really, did this just happen? Like, how did that go in? It's like it's it's stunned silence. Like I've really experienced very few times since, and it's it's that moment uh, of realization that you've just seen something extraordinary. And after that, people just went. I think some people even applauded in that little cafe in Crimea because it was just extraordinary, um, an absolutely pff, astonishing. Then you know we saw it from a few angles, and it's like you know yeah he, he caught it really really well. <laughs> When you see Van Basten's goal, you still look at him. He's not going to. That's that's not going to end up in the net, and it's not going to end up in the net at the velocity he he strikes it. Like it's just an extraordinary. It's such an extraordinary moment, and there's a just there's such a beauty to it. He was such a beautiful, beautifully balanced player. I'd never seen a goal like that before, where, where somebody hits hit the ball so true from an angle like that and against a great goalkeeper like Dasayev. All the more remarkable because it was his right foot, he just had that ankle operated on and it wasn't even particularly mobile and it's the volley by which all volleys are judged. And now the Dutch can celebrate success in the final against the Soviet Union. Rinus Mikkels had felt the pain of losing the World Cup final in 1974. Now he could find peace. This Dutch side were magnificent. They were strong, they were quick, they were skillful, and perhaps most pertinently, given what would follow in future tournaments, they were united. I think for Dutch football, sometimes it seems like luck is, is not, really, not really something that's part of Dutch football. Think about those lost finals. Sometimes as a Dutch fan, it feels, why are we never just the lucky team who just happens to, to win this game because we were lucky? And it, of course, it isn't just luck but that almost hard to pinpoint factor of things just going well for this team. I think because of all of those factors, it just came together and it hasn't happened a lot for, for the Dutch football team, but in 88, it definitely did happen. And that was the 1988 European Championships. 
Join us next time in Sweden for 1992 and what was one of the more surprising outcomes in international football. Your experts were Elko Born for the Netherlands, Dion Fanning for Ireland, Sasha Gurionov for the Soviet Union, Raphael Honigstein for Germany, James Horncastle for Italy, and Oliver Kay for England. Euro Stories, the history of the European Championships was an athletic media production. You can subscribe to The Athletic and listen to the rest of the series ad-free by going to theathletic.com forward slash history. Euro Stories, the history of the European Championships was written and presented by me, Ian McIntosh, and produced by Abby Patterson. The Athletic.